This morning, I want to bring a message that um, I, I think I, I just loved preparing this message. I think there's a lot in it. Um, we're in the series on the road to Calvary, uh, preparing for Easter, and we reach the point where we will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the message is about testing. It's about trials. And I want to talk about testing and trials today, uh, which I know, as I look around the room, is something that probably all of us either have experienced or are experiencing right now. Seasons of testing and trials that come into our lives. Um, I heard a story, um, uh, John Petering, I think, told me this, if I remember rightly, um, that he was on the engineering project for the construction of the uh, freeway overpass at Harndorf. Most of us can picture that, where you go across the freeway and then across the, uh, across the freeway and then come out of the slip lane and onto the freeway. And they obviously, before they constructed it, did all the modelling and all the calculations to assure uh, uh, that the freeway overpass was strong enough to withstand the force of the cars that would go upon it. However, when it was completed, the chief engineer overseeing that project wanted to be sure. They'd done the modelling, but he wanted to do some testing. So he arranged for a whole lot of uh, semi-trailers that were fully loaded um, to just fill that overpass so that the weight that was put upon it was greater than what it would ever experience in the future. The thinking was, well, if it can withstand that test, then it will be able to withstand what happens and what comes in the future. There's another kind of testing uh, that uh, is a different kind of flavour of testing. That, That testing is a testing where one minute the The freeway overpass had nothing on it and then suddenly one after another the trucks just all descended upon it in one in one moment. There's another kind of testing which you experience when you go to Ikea. Uh, It's it's not the testing of like figuring out how you're going to get out of Ikea without having to go through the maze in some sort of human project like you're a a lab rat or something. or the, the testing to try to resist the temptation to walk out with some sort of flat-packed flat item that you don't actually need and don't know why on earth you bought. Um, but uh, I don't know if you've seen there, there's a, there's a test in one of the chairs where they, they, they have this machine that presses a weight against that chair, just over and over and over Again, it says something like this chair gets tested, you know, 10,000 times or something like that. That's a different kind of testing. It's not some massive weight that suddenly comes upon that chair, but it's a testing that just comes again and again. Unlikely the chair will break in the first testing, but after 500 times, after again and again, The question is, will the chair sustain the testing? And it strikes me that in those two examples, in those two illustrations, that captures something of the testings we experience in our life. Some of us face a testing where seemingly in a moment something comes upon us that is a great weight. 
Didn't see it coming. Weren't expecting it. And then suddenly it's like, whoa, wow, I'm carrying this weight now. But others, uh, in other times, it's a season of testing where perhaps it's not like this sort of some enormous weight, but it's just an ongoing thing that chips away, that presses and it builds up. Either way, the testing can seem unbearable. Either way, the testing has the potential to break us. And we may wonder in the midst of that testing, am I going to get through this time? Or how am I going to get through this time? I wonder uh, how many of us here would say that right now you are experiencing a, a time or a season or an experiencing experience of testing in your life. I'm not... I'm not asking what that is or I'm not going to get people to have to stand up and say it, but who would say that, that right now you're experiencing a testing season in your life? Just want to just raise your hand a little. Yeah, a lot. A lot of people. A lot of people. And so this is a pertinent message. So let me read to you from uh, Matthew t- chapter 26, uh, verses 36 to 46. I think there is something in what Jesus experiences in the garden that is so profoundly impacting that particularly if you are in that season right now, my hope and my prayer is that you will take something out of this uh, very deep and very profound this morning. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went to his disciples, went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I want you to hear that. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, um, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, uh, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed, the third time saying the same thing then he returned to his disciples and said to them are you still sleeping and resting look the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners rise let us go here comes my betrayer Uh, so the title of this sermon is simply the garden and um, to give you a summary at the start to let you know exactly where I'm going. What I want you to see in this passage is firstly, and this has been a repeated theme in our Easter series, is firstly the sovereignty of God. Secondly, I want you to see this morning how much Jesus endured so that we could be saved. 
I want you to see the compassion and the love that God has for you and that he's shown in Jesus. And thirdly, I want you to see uh, how he endured his time of testing and trial and how he overcame it and went on to fulfill his mission and the Father's will. And through this, I believe there's just some powerful lessons we can take out of it as applies to our lives. So let me kind of unpack this passage and this story for you. Um, as I've gone through this passage, I've been focusing on the significance of the, the timing and the places in the Easter story. Often we just focus on uh, what's happening with Jesus and his disciples, but there is a context of place and there is a context of timing that actually helps us understand the whole story better. So this event happens on Thursday evening or potentially into the early hours of Friday morning, the very early hours of Friday morning. On the Thursday evening, the disciples have eaten with Jesus the Passover meal. Okay, And um, the Passover meal is at the start of and part of what is known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And so this festival was uh, the greatest and the most important of the Jewish festivals. The Jews had a number of festivals that remembered significant events through their history, but this one was the big one. Uh, This is the, the festival that remembered and focused on how God had rescued his people uh, out of Egypt. He'd brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he'd brought them into freedom in the promised land. And uh, right at the start of Exodus, the the Israelites had been enslaved. Uh, God had sent a whole range of plagues, uh, but Pharaoh, with his hard heart, had refused to repent. The final plague was the plague of the firstborn, when God sent the angel of death to sweep across Egypt and the firstborn son of every household uh, was killed, was died on that night. Except those uh, who had been following God's instruction, the Jewish people had each taken uh, a lamb, a perfect lamb, they'd slaughtered the lamb and then they had painted above their doorposts uh, the blood of the lamb. And that was the sign to the angel as it swept over that they would pass, the angel would, of death would pass over that house and the, that household would be spared. And so that's where we have the Passover because the angel passed over. And then the Israelites uh, took the unleavened bread that they had baked and they escaped out of Egypt. So hence the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Now that is the festival that is happening around Easter and it's very significant so on the Thursday night Jesus said share with his disciples the Passover meal he says in earlier in Matthew 26 on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread the disciples came to Jesus and said where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover he replied go into the city and a certain man and tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So on that day in the lead up to the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, along with all the people who had gone to that festival, would have taken the lamb that they had taken and it would have been slaughtered in the temple courts. 
And um, at the moment, you, you might be not struggling to track with me and thinking, where's this going to apply it to my life and to the story of Jesus? Well, maybe you can see that. Keep tracking with me. But Jesus, you can only picture the building up to this time in the garden and the agony in the garden is that on that day, he has seen in the temple courts the lambs being slaughtered and the blood being shed. And he sees that knowing that he is called and destined to be the Lamb of God, the perfect once and for all sacrifice. You see, you go right back to Jesus' baptism and when John saw him, he said, the words he said was, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke 18, Jesus, it says, says, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that's been written in the prophets will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. If we go right back to Isaiah, we get that passage for it written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then in the evening, Jesus shared that Passover meal. And of course, he took the cup. He said, after they had just that day uh, and just that night, they had remembered the, the blood of the lamb that had saved the Israelites. He then said, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then Jesus, knowing all that is going to happen, uh, I guess the first thing I say is to point out Jesus knew all that was going to happen. I just want to say this again. The sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus wasn't surprised by the cross. It wasn't that, that he had a plan and his plan was interrupted by his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. It wasn't everything was planned and known by Jesus. That's the sovereignty of God. Jesus is in control of these events, even as sinful people uh, come and arrest him. The sovereignty of God. But Jesus also, um, uh, in this moment, um, I'm trying to find out where we are. The sovereignty of God. Um, so before he, in his sovereignty, knowing what is going to happen, before he goes forward into that plan, he retreats. And he retreats to pray. Um, and he retreats uh, you can out of the um, out of the city through the walls of Jerusalem, which you can see there, um, and he retreats down through the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a photo I took last year. I had the incredible privilege of standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, they go down through the Kidron Valley and they, uh, they go up onto just the very lowest part of the Mount of Olives. And uh, Luke's Gospel said they went to um, the Mount of Olives. In Matthew, they say they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. John describes it as an olive grove on the other side of the Kidron Valley. They're all correct. We call it a, a garden and, and now 
Uh, it looks a little bit more like a garden. Uh, it was really an olive grove that he went into. An olive grove, a uh, quiet place, a place where Jesus had gone to pray. And that's where they go, uh, just out of the city walls. And as we bring into this message and as we think about Easter, there's two dangers. One is that we forget Jesus' divinity. If we forget Jesus' divinity, we miss the whole purpose of the cross. But there's another side to it, is, is we can forget his humanity. We can just imagine that, that Jesus is just going through these events. And if we miss this passage, we miss the, the humanity of Jesus in his humanity, the agony that he went through in wrestling with what was about to happen to him. You know, this, this verse, uh, are these words here, where are we? Oops. I've lost it. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. I think we really struggle to understand just how powerfully Jesus is wrestling with what he needs to go through in his humanity. It says that in another gospel, he says, His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The level of agony he experienced as he wrestled with what he needed to go through was such that, that the sweat just poured off him. His prayer is so passionate. I don't know if I've ever prayed that passionately. Have you ever prayed to such a point that you are just sweating because of the fervor of your prayer? Probably not. Now, some people wonder whether indeed Jesus experienced a condition there where he was so agonized that the blood vessels actually burst and he, he actually physically sweated drops of blood. And the question is, what is he wrestling with here? What is the agony about? I think there's a number of things and we've got to understand the fullness of it. The first is, there's no doubt he's got to wrestle with the physical reality of the physical torture and pain that he's got to go through on the cross. I mean, we, we know the crucifixion is the most cruel way in which anyone was killed in the uh, ancient world. So he's wrestling with that. But there's much more than that. He's also wrestling with the rejection and the mocking and the insult that he is about to experience. One week prior, he has been welcomed into the city as a king, his rightful position. But now he is about to be rejected, mocked and insulted. But that's not all he's wrestling with. He's also wrestling with the weight of sin that is going to sit on his shoulder, the spiritual agony that he is about to go through. And I actually think this is above the rejection and the mocking and it is above the physical pain, the spiritual weight of bearing the sin of the world. Um, God... Who, you know, Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us. We sing this song, Bearing all my sin and shame, in love you came. Bearing all my sin and shame. We will never understand that weight. We'll never understand that. Though in the garden, the agony that Jesus goes through, sweating in prayer, like drops of blood falling to the ground, is perhaps getting close to it. That's a, to us understanding it. 
The fourth thing, though, which is another layer again, is that I think Jesus' agony is tied to the knowledge that Jesus, who has existed in perfect relationship with, his heaven, with the Father through all eternity, is about to go to a place and a situation because of the sin that he is bearing, where he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perfect relationship to God, why have you forsaken me? The agony that Jesus experiences is unbelievable that he is about to go through. And in this moment, he agonizes in his sovereignty about what he is going to go through and says in his humanity, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours. I read a quote from, a, or heard a, a quote from a Scottish theologian, which I think uh, was very powerful. He said this, What Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he, the last Adam, would stand before God, answering for the sin of the world. Indeed, identified with the sin of the world. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation lovingly. Two things I want to just point out. It's very interesting that Jesus in this moment goes into a garden. You know what? The first man, Adam, was placed in a garden. A perfect garden. A perfect garden. Sin entered the world in a garden. And now Jesus sits in a garden about to redeem humanity from that same sin. Second thing that's interesting is that Gethsemane, uh, the word Gethsemane, means literally oil, oil press, oil press. I've got a picture of a, of a typical first century um, oil press right there. And you can see how it would work. The, the olives would be placed in there and then the stone would be pushed around and the stone would crush the, 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 the olives and the oil would be released. And to me, that's just another picture of exactly what is going on here and exactly what Jesus is wrestling with. Jesus is about to be crushed, as Isaiah says, crushed for our iniquities and our transgressions. But through his crushing, what's going to be released? The oil of healing. Oil of healing. And, and the oil of, uh, in the New Testament is, is about healing and it's about anointing. Very powerful. So I want you to see what Jesus has done for you because of his great love for us, because of his great love for you. We've just got to sit with that. The, the extent of God's love for you is just so great, incomparable, un, uh, un, impossible for us to fully grasp. But this story, this, 
this moment in the garden, you know, we, we often think about the cross because, of course, that is, that is the great moment. But it, to me in the garden, there's something about that that really helps me understand just how much God loves me. Because he agonizes. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because it's worth doing. Because of my love for, for all people. In the garden. What does this say uh, to us then? What does this say to us who are dealing with trials? I want to I bring a couple of points out of this. Firstly, Hebrews 4.15, a passage which we often, perhaps you may have heard, it says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. And Jesus has been tempted and Jesus has born trials. He has sat there in trials. And so the first thing I've got to say is, if you are sitting in that place of trials, you do not sit there alone. You do not sit there without a God who has sat in that place and knows the agony of facing and experiencing a trial. Jesus sits there in that trial with you, knowing what you are going through. It's one thing for someone who has never been through a trial to try to give counsel to to you when you're in the midst of a trial. It is another thing for someone who you know who has suffered in that same way, who has suffered to sit with you in that trial because they know what it is to suffer greatly. And so I want you to see that and know that. Jesus sits with you in the trial. He kneels with you in the trial. He's he's beside you in the trial. But I want to bring out uh, three other key points. The first is this. Do not let people be your provision in a time of trial and testing. Now, um, so let me, let me look at verse 39 to 43. If we, if we go back to that, I'll flick back in my slides. Um, 39 to 43, it says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. You're not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them doing what? Sleeping. He'd asked and said, just, just for one hour, guys, just for one hour in this moment, I need you. I need you guys to pray for me. You know, I need you to, to, to be with me in this moment. And he comes back, and they've fallen asleep. He goes again, prays again. Come on, guys, stick with me. I know it's late. I know you're tired, but stick with me in this moment. He goes away again, comes back. They're sleeping. Goes away a third time. They're still sleeping. Well, I want to say out of this, uh, this point that, that hopefully in trials and in testing, and often in trials and testing, people will be there. People will be there to be a comfort and to be a blessing and to be there to listen and to be a source of strength. And in times of testing when people are there, it's a wonderful blessing to have people who come alongside and lend that support. And, and often people do that, and hopefully they do. But I want you to know this. People will not always fully understand your situation. And people will not always bring the right words of wisdom and say the right things. Indeed, people will sometimes inadvertently just say completely the wrong things. 
And people will not always stay the distance with you. Some of them are going to fall asleep on the job. And so while it is a blessing to have people who come alongside us and we should be open to the care and the concern and the comfort of people, we just need to know that it is, to whom, it is God to whom we need to turn first and foremost, not to people. We, we can't let people be the ones who we're just going to uh, be expecting that people are always going to come through for us. Sometimes they will and sometimes they won't and sometimes they will partly but not fully. But always it is to God who we, could, who we need to turn to because God will always come through for us. Not in terms of just taking it away, but in terms of being with us in it and bringing us through it. Always. So that's the first thing. First thing is don't let people be, let me say, your sole provision or your main provision. Let God be your main provision. Let God be your main provision. And then that links to the second point is that we should pray fervently and persistently. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Luke's Gospel says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, earnestly, fervently, passionately. Prayer that comes from the heart. And I've got to say, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, that too often we pray prayers that are polite, almost powerless and almost meaningless. Too often our prayer, I believe, and I'll put myself in this camp here because I'm wrestling with this myself, that too often my prayers, and I'll own this, are perhaps prayed with an underlying sense that actually I can solve the problem myself. That, that, that actually, you know, I can kind of sort things out. Rather than just this absolute dependence on God, I am going to entrust you to be the solution to this. I'll give you an example of that. And perhaps I haven't shared this with the church. We've been in the process of uh, working through a pastoral search process for an associate pastor. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, we reached a point where we wanted to bring a recommendation of someone to the church. But that person was still wrestling with a sense of call uh, to the church and to the hills. And after considerable time wrestling with that, they, they came back to us about a week and a half ago and said, just don't feel that calling, so we're back to square one. And I've, I've thought about that after. That in a way, I reckon, and yes, we prayed about that process as a search team and as elders, but we haven't prayed about it as a church at all. And I haven't prayed fervently and earnestly. I've prayed the sort of prayer that says at the start of the meeting, God, be with us in this meeting and, and we, we trust this to you and, and we just pray that you would bring the right person into our midst. But then we get on with the business of finding the right person in a human sense. Right? Now, I know there's a balance there. Yes, we've got to go to work and we've got to do the stuff we've got to do. But I feel it's such a great reminder to me that it's time to get on our knees. And that, that in times of need, get on your knees and pray fervently and pray persistently <coughs> says Jesus went away a second time and prayed so he left them and he went once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing 
persistence in prayer. Jesus gives us the parable of the persistent widow, and it's such a strange parable to wrestle with that one. Does Jesus' mind get changed by a persistent person? I don't exactly even know how that all fits together with the sovereignty of God and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus gives us that parable about a widow who just keeps asking the same thing over and over. And in the end, in the parable, the judge relents and says, Oh, okay, just because you keep bugging me, I'm going to answer your prayer. I mean, I don't even know how that fits with how God hears and answers our prayers. But Jesus taught that parable. I just think that Jesus wants us to keep on praying, to keep on praying. I see you nodding, Brenton, at the back, so I'm going to challenge you and encourage you, pray for our youth as a youth leader and keep on praying. Parents of youth, pray for your kids and keep on praying. Parents of children, pray for your kids and keep on praying. Don't just think that at the human level, our parenting skills are going to get us there. All right, I've got to finish this sermon. I'm getting carried away. Um, what's my third point? Here's my third point, really quickly. Never lose sight of your mission and your purpose in the midst of testing. Never lose sight of your mission and your purpose about who God has made you to be and what God has called you to be and what God has equipped you to be in the midst of testing. Because in the testing, that can be lost. It all just becomes too hard. But part of the prayer is, God, bring me back to the truth of who I am and who you've made me to be and what my purpose is and what my calling is. Something very powerful. I'm going to finish with this. Something very powerful happens between the start of this prayer and the end of this prayer. At the start of this prayer, Jesus falls on his face and is in agony and anguish. If possible, take this cup from me. But at the end of the prayer, he says, arise, rise up, rise up, let's go, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Here comes my betrayer. I'm going to look him in the eye. I'm not not on my face anymore. I'm standing up. I'm not retreating to the garden anymore. And from that moment on, you read the Easter story, Jesus doesn't retreat one half a step as he is arrested as he is mocked as he is beaten as he's tried as he's uh, unjustly condemned as he walks on the road to calvary carrying a cross as he has nails put in his hands as he hangs on that cross for six hours he doesn't take one step back because out of that prayer comes the conviction This is my mission and this is my calling. And in the midst of my trial, I've found strength from God and I've been reminded about who I am and what I'm about. And so I can say, arise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Yet not my will, but yours. I'm going to ask uh, the band come up. We're going to lead into a time of uh, communion. And I guess what I want to say as I sort of transition out of a message into a time where I'm sharing communion at the end because everything that I've shared about the Passover and everything I've shared about uh, Jesus' Last Supper and Jesus' prayer in the garden and that journey, it, it all kind of leads up to this. The whole sermon is a preparation for this, that we would come now.
And so communion gives, gives us space to pray, uh, to receive the elements, but also to pray. And I, I really want to just, just passionately encourage you now to use this time well, to bring yourself on your knees before God with the trial that you face and pray fervently in this time. Pray fervently. And I'm going to pray that God will speak to you and will meet with you. God will touch people in this time. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.